J.T. Crowley is Talking Books. On this show, you'll hear from emerging talent and seasoned veterans from around the world. They'll give you their take on the writing process and how to create the secret sauce of page-turning deliciousness. Let's get into that magical mixture of the art and science of creativity. Here's J.T. Crowley, author of The Smart Kids and your podcast host. Hello. I'm J.T. Crowley, and today I have another fascinating author for you. Neil Boss, a British author, and he's here to talk about his debut novel, the first in the duology, Maybe It's About Time. Neil Best describes himself as an excellent cook, decent writer, average fly fisher, and bad guitarist. He grew up in a middle-class area of London, but as a child, he defined himself as a working-class kid. Growing up as a teenager in London in the 70s, where life was beginning to become less inhibited, with the bars, clubs, and rock and punk music bands emerging on the scene, this was Neil's forte. He loved this time of his life. He started to study marine biology at Bangor University in North Wales, but the social scene was not quite up to his expectations, and he soon returned back to the London life, where he then went on to finish his degree in marine biology. However, the world of science didn't quite sparkle enough for him, so he undertook a master's degree at Henley Management College. He's done various things in his life, but he developed a penchant for life as a high finance person. He's worked in the city of London, where he cut his teeth in that tough competitive world, working for companies such as Ernst & Young and Deloitte. His talents as advising large corporate conglomerate clients on mergers, takeovers, acquisitions was phenomenal, and it took him all around the world. Neil stepped aside from that cutthroat game at the end of 2019 and started to write his book, Maybe It's About Time. Neil has always loved writing. And one of his school reports from his English teacher said, has the potential to be a very good creative writer. Hmm. And when you read his book, everybody, they were right. For me, this book has been cleverly written. The stories and the characters blend beautifully together. The traumas and the tension woven into the plot are tantalizing real as they hit the pages. So let's invite Neil onto the show to tell us more about his book. Maybe it's about time. Neil, come and join me. Good afternoon, John. Good to see you. Well, you can write a book, can't you? It's very kind of you to say. Thank you. <laughs> you can. So, Neil, let's go to, to the book itself. Sure. You know, the first chapter of a book, um, uh, you know, without a doubt, is a pivotal moment for any author. For this is the one golden shot they've got at getting the reader's attention. The chapter has to set the overall scene. You might have an amazing ending, 
uh, with lots of tension and twists throughout the book leading up to the finale. But if you haven't got the first chapter right, the readers aren't even going to give you a chance to see what's in the storylines. Now, when I look at your first chapter, it gripped me straight away. And I think a lot of listeners and readers are going to find this as they, you know, as the case is here. So let's go to chapter one, points failure. Okay. Here you introduce us to Marcus Barlow, a partner in a consultancy firm that advises large corporate conglomerates about mergers, takeovers, acquisitions, and other financial issues for astronomical fees, everybody. Believe you me, the fees are in the millions. And you introduce us to his wife, Alice, a newly found veganist living in their three million pound home. You start to mention what's happening in China, Wuhan, the virus, for this chapter is set in January 2020. Now, the book is not about COVID, but COVID is in the background, everybody. So, Neil, my question is, how did you structure this chapter? And do you think it's decisive enough as an opening gambit to your amazing book? Well, thanks for the introduction, John. I, I think that um, when, when I started to construct the chapter, it, I wanted to introduce Marcus and some of the idiosyncrasies that permeate throughout the novel. And I did that around the construct of his daily commute, uh, something he'd done for over 20 years. Uh, and it's a journey that millions of commuters do every year. Um, his was from Waterloo, which is the one of the main stations into the city of London and out to the green leafy suburbs of Weybridge where Marcus lived. And I wanted to use the chapter to introduce um, his family, but also the start of the struggles he was he's, he's, he has in his job um, with that daily commute, that routine. And that often comes through really banal things like, do you get a seat on the platform? what happens when the trains are delayed, which is becoming more and more frequent. And it's actually starting to build a tension with that daily routine that Marcus is beginning to struggle with. And for those people that, like myself, commuted every day into London when I wasn't traveling, it's often something that can be used constructively. And Marcus is a very observant person. Um, I think probably the same as I am in the way in which I go about life. I'm always looking around at things, questioning, looking at them. And I wanted to build that into his character and even the choice of what fast food he picks the night that he's stranded at Waterloo Station. It's really a description of that, the, the mundane nature of commuting. But for someone like Marcus, it was very real. Because your book, you know, there's a lot of tension in your book. I think you've done a brilliant job with it, putting the tension in the pages. That's not easy. And for you, it's me. I've just picked up. This comes naturally to you. But I want to go now, Neil, to Chapter 2, because this is still the introduction, everybody. This is still Neil building up the story. But Chapter 2, Every Little Helps. Now, this is you introducing us to the second main protagonist in your book, Claire. Claire Halford, a single mum 
struggling to support her two children, Kyle and Alexa, living off universal credit. She's caught stealing food from the local Tesco's Express as she's got no money to feed her kids. You introduce us to Gavin, the social worker she has who supports her. You introduce us to Lester Primus, the local Tesco manager who puts food aside for her. And you introduce us to daytime TV, you know, programs like The Chase, um, with um, who she goes and watches with Miss Mahoney, the caretaker downstairs in the flats. And you even introduce us to the pompous Andrew, the security guard. Now, this character, Claire, who's in her 20s, and the setting, you know, a council flat in mid-London, is in stark contrast to Marcus Barlow, the main character who's wealthy and in his 50s. Why have you, you know, in your first two chapters of your book, here you are setting out the two contrasting characters, one wealthy, rich, Mm -hmm. the other one, a totally different character. Why? What's the purpose here? Well, one of the themes of the book, John, is um, social inequality. And not everybody has the same opportunities and chances as everybody else. And although the pandemic and the coronavirus is a backdrop to the novel, one of the things um, that was said at the time is that we're all going through this together. But not everybody experienced the pandemic in the same way. What I wanted to do was highlight the difference between people that were relatively affluent and well-off versus those people that were struggling. And if people read the book and think, well, at face value, it's very much a satire of the world of professional services that AI worked in and Marcus Barlow, the main character, works in, I think that's only really telling half the story because the other half is very much around the contrast in lives between people that are relatively affluent and those that are struggling. And I wanted to introduce Claire into the book to hold a mirror up to Marcus to compare his life with hers. And for the first half of the novel, it's written very much in alternate chapters. So there's a chapter about Marcus and what's going on in his world. And there's a chapter going on about uh, the next chapter follows Claire's life and what's happening in her world. And they're vastly different in how they, uh, in how they're written. The link around all of this is, as you say, Gavin, her social worker. Now, Gavin lives in the same um, flats as Marcus. Marcus has a pied-à-terre flat in London, so he doesn't necessarily have to commute every single day. And when he's in the office in London, he will often go back to his pied-à-terre flat in Bayswater. And Gavin is the hub around which the two main characters revolve. And he will see Marcus once a week. Another theme that runs through the book is about food. I mean, I'm a very keen cook myself. But Marcus and Gavin enjoy one night a week where they both sit down and alternate weeks cook for each other and they talk about their days. Conversely, as her social worker, Gavin calls on Claire quite regularly and talks about her days. And there is a sort of overlap between the two, but Gavin is actually the hub 
around which the other two characters revolve. And for the first half of the book, I've allowed those two to carry along on parallel tracks. But there is a key point in the book, engineered by Gavin, believing it would be good for both of the characters in their respective lives to meet each other. And it's at that point that the two contrasting backgrounds are actually uh, merged and then they start to interact as two characters. And for the second half of the book, it then runs with the two characters interconnected and then deals with the relationship that deals uh, that comes between Marcus and Claire. Oh, yeah. And of course, the dinner nights are always Tuesday nights, aren't they? Tuesday night is Tuesday Mar- night's dinner night. <laughs> Tuesday night is Marcus's <laughs> dinner night with Gavin. If he, if he hasn't got other commitments or anything like that. Yeah. And the relationship between Gavin and Marcus is also quite an interesting one. Oh, I'm coming to that. Okay, fine. But yes, and the meals, everybody, they're quite posh meals. Um, Neil, let's, I, um, you know, one of the you know, chapters for me that I loved the most was chapter 10. Right. Wonderwall. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. And because I think this is a game-changing chapter, and I'm going to say why. So for me, Neil, this chapter, as I said, was a game-changing chapter because this is the first significant sign that we start to see a change in Marcus's attitude to the job he does. So the project on the go is Project Spearmint, which is full throttle between yep. Marcus and Mason. They're the two partners running it. And it's to procure a, uh, a contract from a spinner. And the procurement lady from Aspina is giving them a hard time. She is determined to get these fees down from 10 million to at least something reasonable. And Mason brings in a different concept of how to put the proposal, the presentation to Aspina. And he brings in a firm, a consultancy firm, CIC, and it's headed up by Gerald Cornelius who has come up with the idea of building a wall with um, putting words on the bricks all about um, what the firm is about and how they're going to help us yeah. to do, you know, deliver, um, you know, project experiment number two. But it's also here, I mean, because... Marcus is starting to think, you know, this is not how he does things. You know, this is, you know, we, we get the indications here that he's not happy here. He doesn't like the way it's been doing. doesn't like open plan offices. And he certainly doesn't like wearing lanyards. doesn't like his name on things. So he's starting to say he doesn't like a lot of things. And he's losing the plot a bit here because he's getting frustrated. So he walks out, goes down to St. Paul's uh, Square, and he sits on a bench. And on that bench is a a you know a down and up guy and this character is called Colin and he starts to talk to Colin so the two of them have the conversation and when you look at the cover everybody on the bench you've got two blokes one is Marcus in the oven the other one is Colin and yes his daughter in previous chapters has said to his dad and her dad you know when they went on a long walk you know hinting at perhaps he should maybe change things but it's Colin who actually says it on page 134. Maybe it's about time. 
And that's what I love about this chapter. This is the game-changing chapter. This is the change. This is the turning point, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. It's quite a crucial chapter um, in Marcus's journey. And I would say, John, that all of the, you know, all of the book is fiction um, based on observations and things that I'd seen from my own working life, my own working career. But this, that the scene with Colin and Marcus is the only one that's really based on fact because it actually happened to me. And I was walking back through the city on my way back to my office after a meeting with a client and thought, well, I'll just sit here and stop. And I, you know, I do, one of the things I shared with Marcus is that I do love St. Paul's Cathedral. I think it's a magnificent building and, you know, it stands out amongst all the other steel and glass buildings that are springing up across the city skyline. But I really do enjoy St. Paul's, always enjoyed looking at it. And I sat in the garden next to a down and out guy who was drinking his cider and was not looking too well. And I'm quite a gregarious chap and I'll pretty much talk to anyone. And he started a conversation and we got talking. And that incident, I wouldn't necessarily accelerated my decision to retire but it was certainly one that had me thinking for a few days about how our lives hinge on certain key events and the colin character his his name wasn't his name wasn't colin um i I just picked the name colin but the character himself um talked about his life and how it had actually um, changed dramatically after the crash in 2008. And from going from a position of relative wealth, was now ending up sleeping rough on the streets of London, trying to get by as best as he could. And it just summed up to me how frail and vulnerable sometimes our fortune can be and hinging on certain key events. And I wanted to use that experience that I had and feed that into Marcus's character and experience so that Marcus understood that actually he was also grateful for everything that his career had given him, but also how frail and fragile and tenuous that position may be. And it's the second instance of someone saying to him, well, Marcus, maybe it's about time. And that's where the title of the book came from which was a man going through a thought process, scared to contemplate what a different future could look like from this affluence, success, everything that was feeding his ego, to contemplate something different. And as the as the cover notes on the book say, you know, two people, i.e. Claire and Marcus, trapped in their own worlds. And Marcus is trapped in his world by his wealth because... He doesn't want to relinquish all the things it had given him, but he doesn't see or contemplate what an other future could look like. He's designing clothes and his brand names. Yeah. He has quite an affection for Colin, doesn't he? Yeah, I I think he does because he realises that there but for the grace of God could go a completely different future for Mm -hmm. him and his children. I don't... 
Yes, and the reason why I chose Chapter 10, because, yes, you say it was the second time, but it was the most significant time and when it was yeah. actually directly said. That's why I wanted to bring this chapter in. Um, now, we've had chats before we've, we've come on live doing the interview here, and I know one of your favourite chapters is Chapter 13, and it's your phenomenal chapter, as far as I'm concerned. It's mushroom management. A mushroom? <laughs> right, okay. Okay. Now I know from our previous conversation why you put this in there. Because Marcus, everybody really comes off the rails here a bit. Um, you can sense things are going to go wrong. They do. And so as it's one of your favourite chapters, I'm just going to sit back. You tell us why you put it in the book. Uh, well, I wanted to have a baseline for how low could someone fall and I'd already done it in chapter two with Claire. And she is caught stealing food from uh, Tesco, from Tesco Express, by only scanning, uh, the self-scanning machine, only scanning a few of the items and just putting the rest in her bag. And at that point, Claire is contemplating the store manager calling the police What's that going to lead to? Social services being informed and possibly losing her children. She envisages this horrific um, future. Fortunately, she encounters Lester Primus, the store manager, who takes a view that, well, there must be a really good reason why this young, young woman with two children has done this. And from that point, Claire's trajectory in the book is always on the up and she starts, you know, her self-esteem grows. She gets a, um, a temporary job working with another mother from the school. Her finances stabilize and she is actually on the up in the book. But Marcus, I wanted to have a slightly different trajectory in the book and I wanted his to start going down because he's coming from a position of success. He's a very successful um, partner at the firm but is equally disenchanted, trapped by his wealth. So I also wanted to um, bring out a number of other themes. And one was the relationship with his son, James. So this crucial meeting for Project Spearmint, which is taking place at the offices of the client in Manchester, gives Marcus the opportunity to go out for a night with his son, who he doesn't see so much of being at university in Manchester. So he combines the trip to Manchester for this crucial meeting the following day with a night out with his son, who is a fairly free-living individual. He is. And is quite happy to indulge his father because his father's paying. And the evening that starts out as a quiet drink in the bar of the hotel then starts to run away, um, away downhill. I should just say that in the events leading up to Marcus getting to Manchester, there are also another series of disasters. He like, he punctures his tire on, on his BMW M5 car, trying to get down the ramp into his flat in London. So he's already money down from his burst tyre and that frustration. He gets to Manchester and finds that not being technically gifted, 
his online booking at the hotel is actually for the following week and then only ha- can only get a junior suite at an either, even more inflated cost. So Marcus is already feeling the cost of this. So frustrated, he starts going out with his son and they go out for a meal um, to indulge their love of meat. Now, as you referred to earlier on, Marcus's wife, Alice, and his daughter, Olivia, after Christmas, have decided that they need to adopt a much healthier um, diet and indulge in a primarily vegan diet, which is a complete anathema to Marcus, who loves all the things, the bacon sandwiches and sausages. And a good steak. And a good steak. Yeah. As does his son, James. So they go out and, of course, alcohol plays a big part in this. But James eggs his father on and persuades his father that one way of enjoying themselves was to carry on drinking and going to a nightclub prison and that taking a few magic mushrooms before they go in might be a way of loosening them up. And, of course, all of the alcohol that they've consumed beforehand on top of a class a narcotic starts to distort marcus's sense of reality and in a nightclub where there's pounding trance music going on marcus's mind starts to warp and then goes on a slippery slope ending up with him being accused of assaulting uh, a young girl on the dance floor which he doesn't actually do It is just a a clumsy collision. But as these events can spiral out of control, Marcus ends up being ejected out onto the pavements Mm -hmm. outside the nightclub in Manchester, falling over and on his face, sort of bursting his nose, having a chronic nosebleed. And the worst part of all of this, and this is a thing on social media, it was just a reference to how many events in people's lives are captured now with photographs on phones and posted on social media. Marcus doesn't do social media, but his son James does. And he puts it on social media. So James is already posting pictures of his father and his his luscious, you know, blood-oozing steaks. And he's obviously taken a picture of his father lying in a gutter in Manchester, posts these on Instagram, and who follows James on Instagram? Well, his sister, Olivia, does. And Olivia shows the pictures to his mum. So the retribution from Marcus's daughter and his wife is going to come the next day. But it's actually to show that at that point, Marcus really does reach the low point in his life, in that only a few hours ahead is a significantly crucial meeting to to win this um, large piece of work. And Marcus is in the worst possible shape of his life to try and deliver this. He is, everyone, but we're not going to go there. If you want to find know what's going to happen, read the book. Neil, we've already said you're a great cook, and so is Marcus. So let's go to, because I think both of us like this chapter, Ready, Steady, Cook. Chapter 15, everybody. Chapter 15, everybody. And... It's so you've got Marcus uh, Mason. Yes, the team at the firm, they're doing their usual business stuff. They're, they're trying to put the Espina contract together for the Spearmint 2 project. Uh, they're trying to lower the cost of the fees, the 10 million pound fee to 
you know, to gain this contract. But whilst that part is in the um, this chapter, the chapter isn't about that, everybody. It's about Gavin's idea of bringing Marcus to Claire's flat and for those two to have to cook her a meal. This is what it's about. Now, you might think, you know, well, Gavin's relationship with Marcus, is he gay? Is he celebrate? Does Marcus you know, aware of what Gavin's thinkings are? What's going on here? There's a whole lot going on here. But this is about the meal, and this is where Marcus and Claire meet for the first time. Tell us how you put this chapter together, because it's wonderful. Oh, thank you. Um, well, all of the chapters in the book have, yeah, I, I try to make them sort of fairly topical bylines. And obviously, Ready, Steady, Cook is a, is a cooking show where people, you know, cook with, you know, uh, cook for um, people on limited ingredients and that sort of thing. But the whole idea behind it is Gavin thinks that a nice night where Claire is made to feel special, she has a very limited circle of friends, none of whom ever cook for her. She's had a very rough two years where she's contemplated suicide several times, hence the reason why she's under the, you know, why she, social services are keeping a fairly close eye on her. And Gavin can see that Claire could do with a lift. He also really likes his cooking friend, from his flat, Marcus, mm -hmm. and thinks that the combination of the two meeting each other would be good for both of them for slightly different reasons. Now, Marcus is quite reticent about, well, meeting this person, what's it going to be like? You know, and I, am I going to be safe going to her flat in that particular area? And Gavin's like, you know, don't be such a snob. And I mean, Marcus is a snob. He is. Uh, albeit a really charming and nice one, but Marcus is a snob. And, you know, one of the things beforehand when Gavin's saying, right, well, we've got to go to her flat and we will cook the meal there. And Marcus immediately says, well, will she have all the equipment that we need? As if, you know, Gavin says, well, I don't think we're going to be needing a melon baller, but she has got a cooker with four rings and a fridge and pots and pans. I'm sure we'll cope. But she hasn't got a posh tap. <laughs> she hasn't got a cooker. Uh, cooker, there's a little theme there about, you know, modern houses with quukers, yeah. yeah. Um, but the, Marcus reluctantly goes. Gavin persuades him that they should wear tuxedos, that they should wear dinner jackets. And that, but also Claire does reciprocate and being a former fashion student still has a few remnants in her wardrobe of the time when she was a fashion student. And dresses up equally nicely. So there are these three characters around which the book really does re revolve, all brought together for the first time in the same room. And it gives an opportunity, or I, I use that as the opportunity, to start really exposing some of these ideas around social inequality. And there's sort of various examples, but Marcus is a very direct character. He doesn't necessarily beat around the bush. So he will say to her, can I ask, how much do you live on each week? 
and she lives on universal credit and she tells him and then there's the, the then there's the reflection from marcus which is well one of a, a new tie is more expensive than what you live on and it's starting to dawn on marcus just how fortunate he is but also equally how trapped he is she thinks he's quite quirky and funny but there are also elements in there where her two small children, um, Kyle and Alexa, uh, age five and three, they quite like Marcus because he can do voices and uh, they ask him to read them a story. So she can see already that this man does have a different side to him. He's good with her children. He mm. reads their bedtime story. But again, it plays back to another theme which is Marcus reading these two children that he's only met for the first time, their bedtime story. But it starts to, for him to question, well, I missed how many bedtime stories I used to read my children because I was flying around the world doing all this work. And it's starting to introduce themes of regret, but also something that I think a lot of people struggle mm. with in jobs that earn a lot of money which is that you can't have everything john time and money seem to me are not necessarily things that you can have in equal measure sometimes they but don't marry up sometimes they don't marry up don't. and marcus is a case of that where he has plenty of money but he didn't always have the time and there's always this thing about the compromises that people in the mm. in the in this world make to fulfill these jobs, but actually how many school plays do they miss? How many sports days do they miss? How many interruptions to family weekends do they have? And this is all about Marcus now starting to regret some of those things that have been part of his life. But it also gives Claire the chance for her to see that there is a side to this man that is actually quite endearing and you know, she enjoys his company immensely. They also have a shared love of music and particularly vinyl. Um, and there are early signs made um, very early on in chapter one, actually, where Marcus is thinking about his CD and vinyl collection and Spotify and all of that. And he still has his own vinyl collection from when he was a, when he was a young man. And she has too. And he loves looking at her record collection. And there are an awful lot of musical references throughout yeah. the book. There but are signs that there's a start of something here. Yeah, there's a start yeah. of a yeah. relationship. Let's go to, Neil, let's take the listeners to uh, Chapter 29, Testing uh -huh. Times. Right. Um, it's an intriguing chapter. We're at the start of lockdown. Yeah. And Marcus' team is working from home, all connecting on Zoom, uh, grappling with another project, Project Medusa. Um, but this chapter is not about that in many respects. You know, it's not about the business corporate world here. It's about Claire's support to getting a COVID test and the lengths that she has to go to get tested as she suspects she's got COVID-19. And further on in the book, Marcus, you, you talk about how Marcus, you know, takes her to hospital. Um, and then you will go talk about, well, she struggled to get a test. She struggled to get there. He takes her there. And all he does to get a test is phone up his um, 
a personal uh, private uh, medical department and they just book him in for a private um, jab the next day for a couple of hundred quid. Yeah. It's inequality. This is what this is about, testing times, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's about, it's about inequality, but it goes back to the, the theme I said earlier on, John, which was when we were told, uh, and certainly by uh, the government, you know, we're all in this together. We're all going to be going, we all have to get through this pandemic together. We'll come out the other side of it. We'll meet again. It was all very Vera Lynn. But actually, lockdown and how people then dealt with the, the subsequent illness was completely different. different for different people. Different, for different people. And certainly around, you know, um, people with money and those without. And I, I did speak to various people that were, you know, worked in the NHS, talking about how they were coping in those early days with the virus and the pandemic as it started to steamroller. And obviously, Claire is living on the second floor of a block of flats in a tiny two bedroom flat with no childcare support around her ostensibly she's estranged from her parents her husband her husband's walked away and left her with the two children therefore becoming ill in that or, or feel, feeling that you've got the symptoms at that time is completely different for claire now Marcus doesn't have any of the symptoms, but because he'd come into contact with Claire, he thinks, well, I, I need to get myself tested as well. But as a contrast to Claire having to go through all of the call 111, go through all of the questionnaires that you had to go through before you could find out what you had to do to go and get a test. Marcus just picks up the phone and rings this concierge type service that's provided to him as a as a partner at the firm called Partner Matters, which I thought was quite a, quite a novel idea. And of course, he goes straight up to um, Harley Street and he gets a test the next day. And that was what I really was trying to mm. reflect was that the pandemic, how we went through it, was different, massively different for people depending on, on their prosperity. And you know, people. I, I know people that were sort of like bemoaning the fact that they couldn't get an Ocado delivery for two weeks or so. Oh, goodness mm. me, how tough is that? And then you've, got, then you've got people like Claire who literally can't, you know, can't even find out whether she's yeah. got the disease and, or has got the illness and what she's going to do. Neil, um, I want you to talk about the last few chapters in your book very briefly um because within these chapters you've got a lot of drama you've got a lot of tension and there's a, an odd shock or two talk us through these last few chapters very briefly hmm. well why did you do what you did well i think john that as a backdrop to it i i i could have really set this book in any time period in the you know contemporary fiction i could have set that at any time in the last few years but i i started writing it in uh, may 2020 because we'd gone through sort of two months of lockdown and i realized that these were really exceptional times and none of us had ever lived through anything like that before and that they were worthy of record and 
I think that some people had said, you know, uh, a couple of reviews have said, maybe in time this will be a really good historic record of what it's like, which I think is a bit flattering. But what I wanted to do was describe what it was like on the front line in dealing with the pandemic. And I had a very, very good um, ICU consultant um, who was advising me. He, you know, I contacted... I contacted the um, British Medical Association. They put out an email. I was referred to, oh, this chap volunteered and said, yeah, very happy to help you with it. And I played back some of my ideas. And of course, at that time, we were all being encouraged to step out on our, our doorsteps at eight o'clock on a Thursday and bang saucepans and clap our hands and whoop and holler for the NHS. But all the time, I always wondered whether this was just some kind of jingoistic activity and did it actually have any benefits? I'm sure that some people did feel um, that their morale was lifted by it. But actually, I think there was a, a deal of cynicism there. And maybe I was slightly cynical about it as well in that. All the while we were banging our saucepans, frontline people in the NHS were really struggling. They didn't have the right equipment. Supplies of oxygen were literally on their knees. Mm. People were being asked to work hours that run, you know, beyond to, to save people's lives with equipment that wasn't necessarily up to the task or in sufficient quantity. And I just wanted to highlight that point within the context. It, it's not a, don't get me wrong, John, it's not a political novel at all. No, it's not. I just, I just wanted to make some points around how, traumatic it was on the front line at that time in dealing with this ill uh, well dealing with this virus okay. Neil um it's a duology this is the first yep. book yep very very briefly can you introduce us to the next book uh I can it doesn't have a title yet I'm sure that will come to me um at, at some what point what are you going to put in it well it's really about what is the next stage in Marcus Barlow's life? Um, obviously, the book is made, called Maybe It's About Time. And it's obviously Maybe It's About Time Marcus Does Something Different. And the second book is, well, what does Marcus now go on and do that, that is different? I've started doing my research. Um, all of, or I say all, in the, in the first book, there are a number of themes running through it um and this one in the in the next book there will definitely be um a couple of very very strong things but it's basically what does marcus now do that you know it's time he had changed his life well in the book he does change his life and it's what okay. does he now go on and do there you go everyone um neil where can people get your book and who would you like to see reading your book uh it's a good question. Um, target audience. The easy answer is to say anybody that's ever worked in finance, consulting, professional services, any, any of that world. And there are thousands and thousands of people across the globe that have or currently do. It's an obvious market because they will look at the satire and the humor in how I've lampooned that world and think, yeah. That's exactly, or uh, and find it money, and find it funny, but I think that that's only a small segment of the who I would like the book to attract to. 
The rest is anybody that just wants a good heartwarming story about the struggles we have as human beings to sometimes change our lives for the better and to make some some decisions, but how our lives hinge on certain key events. I think it's just a, a good read, John. And I think that when I say a target audience, I think that anybody of reading age would appreciate the book. So it does have a very, very broad appeal. And anyone that just wants to read a good novel with plausible characters, some humour, some pathos, and, you know, some fun in it too, would just get a lot from the book. And where can they get it from? Um, well, it's a, it's available to order through all bookshops. It's available on Amazon, both as a Kindle version and uh, and as the sort of paper copy, um, or from my uh, publisher, Troubadour Publishing. If, if you just go online and type in maybe about, maybe it's about time Neil Boss, it will come up in two or three different searches. Excellent. Neil Boss, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a great pleasure and I wonderfully, wonderfully enjoyed reading your book. John, thanks so much, it's a pleasure. I'm JT Crowley. Thanks for listening, watching wherever you are in the world. So until next time, stay safe, everyone. Mm-hmm.